Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferrance.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 51. Exciting episode today because A, I had a great chat that you'll be listening to very soon, and B, this is the last interview episode of year one of Progressions. Next week will be a kind of wrap-up summary of my year in podcasting and what I've learned so far. But before we get to that, we've got to get to today's interview, and before we get to that, we've got to talk about communication. Now, I could sit here and give you the very obvious, that you have to have clear communication with your clients and coworkers if you want to build career-long relationships. But does anybody really need to hear that again? Is there any doubt in your mind that if you learn to communicate effectively with people, that your career will be better off? I mean, we've all heard that advice, right? So now that we've got that out of the way, let's get into why you may not have great communication. It's because of fear. I mean, isn't everything always about fear in the end? So why fear, you ask? Well, for lots of the reasons that we've already talked about on this show in the past. You're afraid of what somebody might think. You're afraid of how you might feel. You're afraid of confrontation. This is all human nature. Don't be mad about it. Don't be ashamed about it. It's the way we are until we decide not to be. So the result of these fears is that you delay the hard conversations. The ones that have the potential for rubbing people the wrong way. And you do it until it's too late, and by then, you've hit the wall of miscommunication and you're in a jam. In fact, there's probably things you hope can be avoided entirely until an interaction is over. And I'm not immune to this. I've got my fair share of things that I've avoided just like everyone else. The only way to get past this is to break it down every once in a while. You'll find that you get an overwhelming sense of relief when you do get to the point of having clear communication in your business and personal dealings. Okay, so let's get this started with an example, one that I think is very relatable in this business, and it's a simple question that gets asked every single day. What's your rate? Boom, knee-shaking fear has just overtaken you. I'm scared, you're scared, those people over there are scared, everybody is scared shitless. But why? Why do you want to avoid having this conversation? Most people dodge it, they say something like, I work within people's budgets, what's the budget look like? I don't know, it varies from project to project. No, I call BS. Everybody has a number that they want. But here's what's going through your mind. If I cost too much, will they go somewhere else? If they're unwilling to pay my rate, does that mean I'm not good enough to get that rate? How do my rates compare to other people's? Am I too cheap? If I'm too cheap, will they think I suck? All those thoughts have crossed every single freelancer's mind. So stop trying to protect yourself and being so concerned with what other people think. You have confidence in your skills. You should have confidence in knowing what your worth is. Ask for it. 
Yes, you might not get it. You may have to cut a deal and change what the offering is to work with their budget, but this is all communication. This is the back and forth in which everybody understands the expectations of the project. Which brings me to my next communication point, expectations. If you are unwilling to make it obvious what the expectations in a relationship are, then you can't be frustrated when the other party doesn't meet them. That goes for both sides. If you are purposefully avoiding making expectations clear in hopes that it will work out in your favor, then you are on the fast track to confrontation. So the one thing you're trying to avoid is exactly the thing you are welcoming in. Here's an example. If I don't tell you what stems are included in a mix, then you might try to ask for stems of every track in the song. And once we're done, I can't really tell you that it's an extra fee without souring the interaction. Now the last thing that the client is going to remember is me asking for more of their money for something that they assumed was included. All because I was unwilling to lay out the expectations in the beginning. This is another one that's rooted in being too concerned with what other people think. You're afraid that by conveying the expectations to somebody that they will think you're needy or pushy or whatever it is. Here's another example, something that is absolutely ridiculous that I actually do and probably should not admit to. But I have a spec sheet for how I like files delivered for mix. This makes my life easier, right? And I don't send it to every person I work with. Why? Because I'm afraid they'll be annoyed by it or that they'll be frustrated by it. But that's not about them. That's about me. I don't want them to think poorly of me in any way. So it's not about me being courteous of their time. It's about what they will think about me when I send it to them. And I should tell you that nobody has ever pushed back on me when I sent them that sheet, which makes the fact that it's not my standard move even more ridiculous, and it goes to show you how powerful our mind can be to work against us sometimes. Okay, so now that we've convinced you not to worry about what other people think and to stop protecting yourself, it's time for the last piece of the communication puzzle. And you're definitely going to want to master the previous bits before you tackle this one. It's leaning into confrontation. Yes, I said lean into confrontation. Society has become very non-confrontational. Most people avoid certain things solely to avoid confrontation. But healthy communication and relationship growth requires confrontation. It requires two-way communication. And not fisticuffs. We're not talking about physical confrontations. We're also not talking about arguments. We're talking about having the uncomfortable conversation, being honest with your opinions and the needs of the project or your business or whatever. Basically, we're talking about being blunt, getting to the point and not beating around the bush. And people don't like to be called blunt, which is funny, actually. Now, it's been a while since we busted out the dictionary, so let's do that. Blunt is defined as uncompromisingly forthright. Another classic dictionary definition that requires a dictionary. So, let's break it down further. Uncompromisingly, meaning making no concessions, inflexible, unyielding. And forthright, meaning direct and outspoken, straightforward, and honest. So, I don't know, it sounds like Blunt is actually the type of person you might want to be. And maybe the type of person you want to work with. Unyieldingly honest? Yeah, sign me up for that. That sounds great. Isn't that the goal for when you finally reach the ultimate level of understanding a language of communication with your clients and collaborators? Or anyone in your life for that matter? Don't you always want to know where you stand with people? 
Don't you want to get to a place where the artist feels okay about saying they don't like something about the production, and then you're open to make the change because the two of you have reached the point of trusting each other enough to be honest with and not offended by one another? I mean, think of all the aspects of your business and personal relationships that you could improve if you're willing to confront people and be blunt every once in a while. If you can become the type of person that is very clear in what they want, what they do, what they don't do, how it will be done, etc., then you will be inviting the other people you're interacting with to do the same. And then all of a sudden, communication becomes a wide-open two-way street with no speed bumps. Okay, so of all the things I've brought up on this show, this is probably one of the hardest. You're really fighting against nurture and nature on this one. You've got this cultural bias towards not ruffling the feathers, and then you mix that with the human bias towards staying safe and comfortable. So it's a tough combo to overcome. It is definitely very easy to avoid confrontation and to live in the gray area of communication at times. But I can attest from my own experience that when you're able to have honest and clear communication, that those relationships will thrive and become some of your most fulfilling. Today's guest is pianist, composer, producer, and musical director David Cook. David is an accomplished jazz pianist, having released two albums and represented the United States internationally through Jazz at Lincoln Center and the U.S. State Department. He's also an adjunct professor for the John J. Cowley School of Music at Montclair State University. And finally, his work as a musical director and touring musician has taken him around the world several times over. He's MD'd or played with artists including Taylor Swift, Thomas Rhett, Maren Morris, Liz Wright, Joshua Bassett, Shoshana Bean, and NSYNC. So welcome to the show, David Cook. Hey, David, how are you? All right, Travis. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on. I know I know you're yeah. busy. Usually, I feel like uh, we're on FaceTime doing an audio movers mix recall, and you're complaining about hotel internet. That's that's happened uh, lots of times. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> somehow the, the most important day of the mix session always happens. First of all, it's always been happening remotely lately, and then it always happens when I'm somewhere with just the worst internet <laughs> possible. So That's right. Yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah, well, you know, it's the way of the world. We all need better internet, yeah. everybody. I saw you just put a record out or you just produced a record, this X Vitamins thing. I just listened to the whole thing in my run this morning. It's really yeah. good to run to. Oh, <laughs> man, great. thank you. You know, actually, I I spent a lot of last year running, um, listening back to the to the mixes or listening back to what <laughs> I'd done. Like, That's it's, funny. It's also like, it's something like 35 or 40 minutes long, I think, total, yeah. which, is, which is a pretty good... It's a decent uh, amount of time to run, right? So, yeah. yeah, especially for a musician. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so I did a kind of a laptop side project record, something I've been wanting to do for a long time. You know, working as a musical director in lots of these uh, contexts in the past um, 10 years or so, spent a lot of time with loops, with sounds, with... Pro Tools grids with uh, sound effects, sound design, all, all sorts of stuff that doesn't have much to do with um, jazz piano, but it's, it, you know, they're just more tools to have in your arsenal. And after having spent so long with the technology kind of in service of uh, other people's music, I decided to kind of take the time that was presented last year and um, kind of scratch this itch and pursue writing and producing music that had no 
what's the word for it? No preconceived notion of how it was going to turn out about what I was going for. Just, just write some music and throw some stuff at it and see what happens. And it resulted in this um, record that just came out maybe a month ago. To, I, I call the project X Vitamins. Got a bunch of friends, badass musicians to contribute remotely to it. Guys like Nate Smith, Mark Juliana, Tim LaFave, Jeremy Most, Max Bernstein, uh, Adam Levy. So got to work with some guys who really inspire me and um, it all kind of came together nicely. Yeah, it sounds great. You guys did an awesome job. The first time I listened to it was this morning. I figured I was like, I'm going to check this out before the show. So, but uh, yeah, it sounds awesome. There's something about like, and this isn't a knock on pop music, but pop music is very looped, like you said, but there's something about players. I guess I should tell people that this is, it's kind of, how would you describe it? It, Like very musical instrumental pop, but that's a weird description to tell somebody. (laughs) Anyway, I think it's cool to hear players play that stuff down and like people that groove together and it just makes such a big difference than the same four bar guitar loop going around 84 times, you know? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I appreciate the kind words about the, the project. And I think a lot of the tunes at one point or other were considered as, you know, songs for my wife, Shana, or that I had, you know, worked on for other people. Uh, maybe this this might work for Shoshana or for whoever else. And um, it's like, now, you know what? I've, I've listened to it so many times, instrumental. Let me... Um, add a few melodies in some spots where it's needed, uh, you know, from another sound. But um, yeah, I don't know how many of them were written initially to be instrumentals. It just kind of worked out that way. On the album, I think it's 10 songs and two of them have vocals. Yeah. Everything else is instrumental. But I, I thought that was kind of a nice balance. Yeah, no, it was great. Uh. This is great work. Um, so usually we dig in on like musical roots and kind of just go that way. You've been playing for a long time. How did you start? your musical journey? My mother's a piano teacher and started me when I was three years old. And I, at the time, I guess I, I took to it. I had some natural ability, probably mostly with ear and, and hearing things and being able to hear something and sit down on a piano and kind of uh, work it out. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've been playing since, uh, you know, it's since before I can remember. And I also had a lot of other interests in high school, you know, as everybody does, uh, I was uh, playing on a couple sports teams and a bunch of other activities. And it was something that I took seriously enough to have recitals and to practice here and there and, and ended up auditioning for some music schools, but wasn't necessarily something that I was sure that I would or could do for a living. But I got accepted to the University of Michigan School of Music, sort of in a, in a, circuitous way where they were sort of restarting a jazz program that had maybe been dormant for a little while. And they were looking for students just like me that maybe weren't right for a classical program, but could certainly fit in in the school and showed that I, you know, wanted to be there and wanted to work hard. And so um, it was sort of a last minute thing to go to school there. And then it just kind of all took off um, from there. That's cool. So why, um, do you mind if I ask, why were you hesitant about uh, music as a living? Because I feel like that is something that, like a lot, everybody that's decided to do music for a living has probably had that moment where they were like, I don't know if I can do this. What was your, what was your reason for it and, and why'd you push through it? Well, I mean, I grew up 
in what I considered was a very normal uh, circumstance with the family, you know, with the um, two parents that were together with a younger sister uh, in a house with a yard and a driveway. And, you know, the the older I get, the more unbelievably lucky I realize I was to to grow up in in such a stable environment. But, you know, my dad was an attorney. Both my parents are musicians. You know, my mom, a teacher and also plays a bunch of other instruments. My dad, you know, attorney by day, but um, uh, also played a bunch of instruments, including uh, a very good jazz pianist. And so we just grew up with music. But I also grew up in this um, environment that was very stable. And I knew that I I wanted to replicate that when I was old enough to be working, old enough to get married, old enough to have kids. And I uh, just wasn't sure if music was going to be a stable enough career, but also, honestly, if I was if I was good enough at it. And I also was maybe wise enough to know or what or whatever you, you call it, that it, it I also knew that it doesn't necessarily just come back to how good you are, that you have to get breaks. You have to have some luck that there are probably lots of really amazing musicians out there that are struggling. And I mean, and it's true to this day so just true. because of, of how their lives work out. But if you have just two seconds for a quick story about the, like when it all kind of crystallized to me. So I was trying to be a double major in music and communications. I was giving myself a full other degree to fall back on if music didn't work. And I thought I was doing it in the right ways, taking the right classes was, you know, following the right path until I guess it was the middle of my junior year. I sat down with a um, advisor who was looking at everything. And she said, honestly, like, Michigan doesn't really do this for these two disciplines. This is not an easy path to double major in. You're basically going to have to get two degrees, which is going to take about six years worth of undergrad. So she said, if I was you, I would take the weekend and figure out which path you want to declare as your major, music or communications. So, Just the weekend. Pretty, just yeah, just take, yeah. take 48 hours and sort out <laughs> right, the rest of your life. <laughs> what you're doing with your life, yeah. So I was trying not to look at it like that, but I also was looking at it like that. And so um, it was snowing. I was I'd left the meeting and gone to the school of music to practice for a little bit and hopped in the car, driving back to my apartment. And when I got there, this is like before cell phones, and uh, you know, it's a uh, home phone. And I get a call from the head of the music school uh, or the, the jazz department, a great trumpet player, educator named Ed Sarath. And he said there was a... Um, a violinist in the Detroit area, a jazz violinist named Gerald Damien, who at the time was signed to GRP Records, who had called the school asking for a keyboard recommend and that they had recommended me. He said, now, I don't know what this guy has going on or you know what, what his deal is, but he seems like he has a lot of work and so he might be calling me. I said, okay. And five minutes later, Gerald Damien calls me and asks if I want to go out on the road as his... Um, touring keyboard player for the his promo that he's doing for an album that just came out. And the band was just going to be me and him with a uh, track. And again, this is before, the, I mean, there was email then, but, but no Dropbox, <laughs> no, you know, nothing like that. So he drove from Detroit to my apartment in Ann Arbor, dropped off a CD and a bunch of charts. And the next week we flew to South beach and the same stuff that I was playing in a practice room in, in Ann Arbor, you know, just kind of keeping my head down, working on my stuff. I was now playing on stage at this club and like 
most of the Miami Heat were there and most of the Miami Dolphins were there. And it was this whole scene and everybody loved this guy at the time. And like, I was just hooked. I was hooked on playing music on the road. I was like, well, if there ever was a, a sign of what it is that I should be doing with my life, this, this is it. So um, it was from, from there on, it was just, just music for me. That's awesome. That's awesome. Did you, did you go back and graduate or did you just go play in? I, uh, no, I graduated and actually the, um, the teachers, everybody there was very understanding. I mean, this was a, a promo tour. So, you know, I'd be gone for a weekend, come back for a week, leave for a week, come back for two weeks. You know, it wasn't, right. um, it wasn't six months straight. They were very understanding of, um, missing class. As long as I kind of kept up with my work, they're like, this, this kind of thing is what you're here for. That's awesome. So by all means, go, go gig and, you know, we'll figure it out. It's a really good story. I, I dig that. So then, uh, where did you go when you graduated? What What was the first gig or the first the first choice after that? So I graduated in uh, nineteen hundred and ninety seven, <laughs> and and I I knew that um, I I wanted to go somewhere. I wasn't exactly sure where, and I wasn't sure for how long. Um, I really love to this day the the Detroit area. So many great musicians there. Such a great scene. The jazz scene, um, you know, who they've produced over the years is second to none. There's a really great rock, underground, all sorts of music there. So I, I really liked it there, but it figured, you know, at some point, try to strike out somewhere else, whether that was New York or L.A. or Chicago or somewhere. But I uh, had a couple of non-music day gigs and then ended up with four-night-a-week duo gig in a suburb of Detroit playing um, a duo with a trumpet player. And we would play, I think it was 7 to 10, Tuesday through Friday. And he was a guy, his name's Mark Byerly, became a really good friend, great trumpet player, had just moved back from New York to the Detroit area for family reasons. He got my name i i think when he moved back he sort of got a leg up on this this gig and was looking for people and i just started calling them alphabetically and my name was uh maybe first uh but <laughs> alphabetically by last name and i called him back first and we ended up doing this thing for almost two years a hundred dollars a night very cheap rent in ann arbor so i was able to save up a bunch of money and he was also the one that really sort of pushed me to going to New York where, you know, where he had just come back from, he was telling me all about the the different scenes there, all the different kinds of players, the different kind of work that he had there. And he's like, you should just do it now, do it for a couple years, see how you feel. You know, if you want to um, come back to Detroit after that, by all means do it. But said, if you spend too long here, you're going to get comfortable. Mm -hmm. And before yeah. you have anything else tying you to this area, other than music, just, give it a shot in New York. So two years later, that's what I ended up doing. That's awesome. That was, so what was the plan when you got to New York? Was it to get into one of these like communities that he was telling you about? Or was it to start just playing wherever you could? I was going to give myself two years because I had been told if you don't last that long, you will have never really known what you could achieve in the city. That, that this two years was kind of this magical number that I had in my head. Okay. When I, when I moved there. <laughs> so I knew I wanted to study with my heroes. I hit up Kenny Werner as soon as I moved out here. I hit up Bruce Barth, who was another pianist that I really looked up to. Fred Hirsch, of course, 
that everybody uh, sort of wants to study with him. So I thought, let me just throw myself into the scene, throw myself into um, into jam sessions, meeting other musicians, and just start to climb the ladder. I don't know if I if I had any specific goal other than two years and making all my money playing piano, you know, not having to have a day gig, but just playing instead. Yeah. And that actually was a lot easier than I would have thought. It took like three or four months before I found enough work where I was paying my rent as a, as a pianist, you know, you, you get, there's a bunch of other gigs that are out there for you that aren't there for drummers or bass players. Um, you know, playing solo, accompanying singers. Yeah. I got a lot of work playing for Broadway auditions, just being the pianist to accompany eight hours worth of auditions. And it pays $50 an hour. You know, it's a pretty good day. Uh, and you've yeah. got your evening to, you know, to go to a jam session. So, yeah, I, I sort of accomplished what I set out to accomplish relatively quickly. And then once I did that, I thought, okay, well, well now I want to be the best. <laughs> I want to be the, the now that I've, I, I kind of set these, what I thought were pretty lofty goals and ended up hitting them shortly. Then I said, okay, well then next I want to do this. And now I'm still, <laughs> still working at that. Uh, <laughs> that, that one being the best that, that takes a lot longer apparently. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. You know, what's funny is I didn't think about it until you mentioned it, like in the, obviously in the engineering world, you think about like, you know, uh, you can really open up your future by like working with, you know, some of the greats, but in like the engineering production world, you kind of have to commit to that being a job. But as a musician, you can do lessons and, and go to jam sessions that, you know, some of your idols are, are at and kind of get that, but not have to put that like multi-year commitment. And was, was taking those lessons with some of those guys that you really looked up to, was that like part of what opened you up into the community more when they, when they see that somebody they're working with is good, do they say, Hey man, you got to go meet this guy, you got to jam with this guy. Is it, is it helpful? Yes and no. I mean, there was no like straight point A to point B, like, okay, I play for this person and they said, oh, okay, now you have to go over here and this person needs to hear you. There, there wasn't anything like that. I mean, I remember going to see Bruce Barth play a few times and he introduced me to some of the other musicians that were there, um, you know, saying, hey, this is my student, David, he's one of my better students, or, you know, or whatever it was that he said and it was nice to meet them professionally that didn't really move the needle for me it was more about um and i i, I sort of figured this out as i was there and it's it's true of musicians in any city where you just have to find your crew your scene your family of people and then just sort of make the rising tide thing happen where something good happens to this drummer that you're playing with, he gets hired for a, a really good gig. That's good for all of you. This guitarist that we play with a lot, he gets hired for a really good gig. That's good for everybody. And then that means maybe they get a chance to do a record as a leader and they bring you on for that. And it all just kind of goes forward like that. So it was more about the individual musician connections and, and playing with them and just kind of finding your, your group of, of friends than going right to the top of some, you know, some guy that I really looked at, uh, looked up to that ended right. up you know, hiring me for stuff. Okay. So, yeah. So, okay. So it really is, it's a family is a great word to use. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out 
tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Because I think about, like, you know, as your career has gone on, I'm sure that you have called so many people that you met back then for various things. Because you have to, like, especially in the MD world, you have to have a huge list of players and know like what their strengths and weaknesses are when you're putting a band together right yeah and it's like it's constantly changing too having done it for this long now i mean i i I went through a period of time where for for a good five or ten years i'm like okay well this is the guitar player that i want to use for everything this is the drummer that i want to use for everything and then stuff changes they may they may um get a gig that uh, that they don't want to leave or they may um, s- start doing something else altogether or um, have some family stuff happen and need to be at home more often. There's all, there's all sorts of, of things. So, and then, you know, you, you sort of watch the scene sort of reset itself or re- regenerate itself and new people move to town and they kind of figure out what you have to do to, to work uh, around here or, or again, same, same thing in LA, same thing in other places. And then, um, then a new generation comes in behind them. So I found that not being too precious about age or generation or, or anything like that, but just, just recognizing that everybody has something to bring to the table, whether they're Mm. 45 or 20 and just kind of seeing where everyone's at. That's the way to, um, keep the address book full of names and numbers and know really who's out there. And um, I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of people that kind of stick to their own group. I mean, I was saying you all kind of come up together, but there's always some really, really, really great talent, like right behind you. Yeah. And they are certainly part of the, end up being part of the family as well. Yeah. Is there like uh, you mentioned, like, you know, new people come to the scene and younger people are always following up. Are there no-nos? Like if you're the new kid that just, you know, left home or just graduated music school and you show up and you're trying to make a splash, is there like one thing that a lot of kids do that kind of turns heads like, us, oh, another like ego kid that graduated and thinks he's awesome? Yeah, man. If there's a politically that, correct answer to, <laughs> to yeah, that that you can I share mean, to a kid. I have, I have lots of, uh, lots of thoughts about that. <laughs> I mean... Number one, it's, it's interesting that you say this can, and to like to try to think about it in these terms. When I first moved here, the last thing you would ever do is talk about how great you are, okay? Or to do anything other than let your playing do the talking. Mm, it okay. was, there was zero self-promotion. You know, maybe you try to send a CD or, you know, some clippings or something to a club to try to get gigs and i mean i i was i was just trying to be a sideman so i wasn't even really in the world of of trying to um trying to get gigs from people other than other musicians right i was only concerned about impressing other musicians but i don't think there's ever been a time where i was telling somebody how good i was right and now in 2021 when you've got 
Instagram and TikTok and all I mean these things just just exist to tell people how great you are. And it is a complete 180. So but it's like Ed, that's just part of the game now. You mean it you, is? you kind of have to I mean you don't have to, but but 99% of the musicians I know have some sort of profile out there in social media and then it's kind of up to you to how you portray it. But yeah, fundamentally it's like a 180 from how I grew up. So your question was, you know, is are there any no-nos? I'd say, yeah, the entire way of doing business in 2021 is is just a giant no-no compared to how how I grew up. But I, but I get it, you know, just is what it yeah. is. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I something that I haven't brought up on the show is when I came to LA in uh, 2006, a lot of people I interacted with had issues with Berkeley graduates with egos. And this is in the production, in the engineering side. And there was, I, I don't know, there must have been like one batch of people that just like really felt like they were amazing and kind of just left a bad taste in, in people's mouth that they remembered that. So when I actually came here, I didn't tell people that I went to Berkeley College of Music. I said I went to music school and, and I left it at that. I feel like it's important because there are amazingly talented people like moving to LA and New York and Chicago all the time. It's, But I think ego is needs to be checked a little bit not checked but you know it's got a time and place (laughs) yeah and and um i heard some of the same kinds of things Um, i remember one of the first touring situations that i had it was with um so i went after i moved to new york six months after i moved to new york i got hired relatively randomly to play keyboards for nsync and i was on the road with them for two and a half years until they broke up I spent the next year or so at home, again, climbing the ladder, shedding jam sessions, all of that, because, you know, that whole world meant nothing in a in a jazz club in New York. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, Nobody cares. You tell somebody. Yeah. You tell somebody that you were just on the road with NSYNC for two and a half years and they don't know whether to to you know ask you about it or or <laughs> say that they're sorry or or <laughs> what. You know, it's just it's. It, it just didn't it didn't mean anything, you know, good, good or bad. But I got a uh, call to do another thing for J.C. Chazé, who's one of the uh, lead singers for NSYNC. He put out a record maybe a year, year and a half after they broke up. It was a fantastic record. And I went on the road with them. But it was um, a bunch of musicians from L.A. And I remember one of them saying, you didn't you didn't go to Berkeley, did you? Like, like, we're going to have a problem if you, you know, if you went to Berkeley, because apparently he had you know, been through a lot of the same stuff you're talking about with some, with some egos. I mean, by now, I mean, I have, you know, thousands of musician friends that went to Berkeley and I don't, I don't sense an ego thing with any of them, but that was a particular time. Like you're talking about where that, what, whatever happened, that that's a thing that, uh, um, yeah, was out there. Yeah. And I agree. I'm not, I'm not talking negatively. I mean, all my friends are from Berkeley and I I've hired assistants and kids and they're all like, they're all really killer, but something about like the early two thousands, like, Something went awry somewhere, <laughs> but it's been, it's been resolved, which yeah, is great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I wanted to get into, because you do obviously a lot of large MD gigs. So I wanted to get into how you got into musical directing. What was your first foray into that? Well, it I guess it's kind of two pieces. I mean, and it all just kind of happened naturally. It's not necessarily something I sought out. First of all, playing with all these singers in, in New York. I was really, um, I was really fortunate to 
have gotten to play for a lot of great singers at Michigan. Michigan has such a legendary musical theater program. You know, all of their graduates, more or less, all moved to New York as soon as they graduated. I mean, that's the thing. They moved to New York and they auditioned. So I moved there at the same time as, you know, 20, 30 singers that I had also played for in Ann Arbor. And there were a year or two behind me, but I, I had stayed the extra years in Ann Arbor to practice and to um, save money. So these friends of mine introduced me to, first of all, some of them went on to be incredibly successful. Gavin Creel being one of the uh, the bigger names who's starred in a bunch of stuff on Broadway. And he introduced me to a number of other people. And a lot of these people were singers that loved Broadway and were in a show, but they also wanted to be their own artist or headliner or put out their own album. And we aligned in what we listened to and liked. And one of these people was Shoshana Bean, um, you know, who I probably met in 2000 and worked with her getting a band together to play her, you know, cabaret show or the first couple times that she wrote music and wanted to perform it out for people with a band. This is something that like, it wasn't jazz, but it wasn't very far off. It was the same kind of thing, just getting musicians together and playing music that just happened to be their original music or some Whitney Houston covers instead or something. (laughs) So that was one piece of it. The other was when I got the in sync gig and saw what their musical director, a great friend of mine by the name of Kevin Antunes, um, he's the one that hired me originally for the gig, seeing what he did and his technological fluency with playback computers and stems and how to run a band, not just musically, but with the personalities and with all the time on the road and just kind of learning from him what that takes. I didn't, it wasn't the kind of thing that I thought, oh, I, I, I should be doing this or I want to be doing this, but it, it was like, okay, I see, I see what that is. And um, eventually those two kind of pieces just end up coming together where you know how to put a band together and how to play the music for people. But then you also know about the bigger picture side of it with uh, all the kind of the technical and, um, you know, personality requirements. So yeah. it all just kind of ended up coming together at some point. That's cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Before, because it's not a progressions episode until there's like a, a random tangent right in the middle of the story. Before we go back on that, you mentioned playing with a lot of singers. And when I was doing my my usual research, I saw that you had done like a master class on accompanying vocalists. And we've, I, there's been a lot of engineers and producers on this show. And we've talked a lot about like learning to listen and like your listening environment from like a technical standpoint. Do you have any thoughts on like learning to listen musically to your singer, to the rest of the band? Like any thoughts? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Great. Great question. So I mean, just in the last six months, I've played for several different singers just kind of across the spectrum that are all really, really great. And they're all coming from totally different places when it comes to performing, when it comes to interacting musically, when it comes to the expectations of the gig. And you just have to know what the, you have to be aware of the situation. I mean, as, as basic as that sounds, yeah. but it could be, okay, I'm playing for somebody right now that is an amazing singer and that is freaking out with nerves right now. I can't wait for them to to tell me what to do. They're, they're, they're putting their, um, they're, they're hoping that I'm going to be the one that kind of just shows them 
where this is going. So I need to be very strong and very clear for what they're, you know, what they want right now. And then we'll yeah. go that way. There's other people that are, it's so improvisatory that if you are too strong and clear, then they'll be like, well, what, what about me? What, you know, I'm, I'm trying to say something over here. So you have to kind of be ready for that dialogue while you're playing. Yeah. And then there's other people where like, this is the expectation is that you play this song this way right now with this tempo and um, just do that and we'll be fine. And there's, there's almost no dialogue in the way that in any of those previous settings, but it's kind of its own thing where it, as long as you do this, it's going to be great. So it's, it's also kind of all laid out there in front of you. In some ways that can be easier. That's three examples. There's a million examples of different ways to approach playing with singers. You just have to keep your ear open to where this is going and just sort of know what's expected out of you and um, take it from there. Yeah, that's great. We, I've just, we've never had anybody, you know, that could really speak to that on the show. So I, I thought that was important. Is there like, this is my opinion and you can agree or disagree. I feel like there's a, like in someone's musical development, there's like the chops phase where like you're really like learning like what your limits are and what you're capable of. And then I feel like you, you hit that wisdom phase where you learn to control that. Do you ag agree? <laughs> hmm. um, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm thinking of like a drummer. Less is more playing groove, pocket and feel like with the band verse, just massive bar and a half long fills that are unnecessary. Yeah, no, I think I think in in practice, you are absolutely right that like you sort of need to have the chops thing happen before the wisdom thing for my own playing in in as much as i ever like talk about myself playing piano i see both of those things as just a constantly rolling goal line where i've never left a gig saying you know what i think my chops were perfect for this for this one you know i had just the perfect <laughs> amount of chops for this um or like i'm glad i have all this wisdom that, that i was able to do this gig i feel like i'm still in i'm learning with every situation and I'm, I'm taking something out of every situation. And usually it's, it's just more of a, a feeling of like, yeah, this was, this was fulfilling tonight yeah. or okay. Th this and this needed to happen in order for it to be more fulfilling and it didn't happen, you know? So it's, it's more um, in the, in the ether, I guess. Um, okay. <laughs> than what, than what your, yeah. Than your description. Okay. No, that's that, that's great. All right, so we'll yeah. work our way back to music musical directing now. So, okay, so you've done a lot of huge tours. Obviously, you've been working with Taylor Swift for a long time, right? And then you've got Thomas Rhett and a lot of other people. What kind of prep goes into a show of that magnitude? Are you guys like working with the artists and the managers like months before anybody even rehearses? Like, how's it go down? Well, it's all over the place. You know, each of these artists is kind of its own self-contained world, right? But a lot of these people know each other and they, they talk and they're, they're friendly and they're, they um, get ideas from one another. But when you're dealing with some of these, these big tours, there are so many people in on making the decisions that, you know, this group of, of five or 10 or 20 people say, okay, well, here's the rehearsal schedule that we're going to have. Here's the, here's the first show. So let's work backwards to, you know, what do we need to do in order to get there? And then that can be just depending on the situation that could be anywhere from eight or nine months 
of prep to one week of prep. And I certainly prefer the eight or nine month version, get more sleep along the way. And I, yeah. I think you, I generally feel that the more time that you have to prepare, the better the product's going to be. But I also know that, um, that people are working with budgets and sometimes that only allows for a week of rehearsal. So, you, and, you know, you have to make it happen either way. Nobody's going to go to a show and see it and think, oh, I, I bet you they didn't have much rehearsal time. I bet they could have used another week of rehearsal. Nobody, nobody thinks that. They either, you know, like it or don't on, on you know, on certain levels. So um, it's sort of up to you to roll with whatever the, the timeline is. And, you know, I'll, I'll weigh in here or there say, like, that's, you know, if we only have this much time, then we can probably only really do this much to it. You're talking about, like, preparation. I know some of the, the tours and the shows you've done have also, like, turned into, like, Netflix-released documentary films. Is that, like, a layer of pressure on top of normal tour prep? Or at this point in your career and, like, the band's career, that's just, like, another day? Yeah, I mean, it is it is definitely another layer. It it just depends on a, on a number of different factors on it, how stressful it is. A lot of the time for these sorts of things, it's, it's an even longer, more crazy day with a, you know, maybe there's a sound check that they're going to film as well as the show. Maybe they're loading in cameras and everything that day. So there's a level of stress from the, the technical side of the, the camera crew and everything as well, trying to get everything done. Maybe this is a shorter timeline than they would normally want. But again, there's, there's budgets and you know, that's just the way it is. So um, the hardest part of that for me is to, once we're actually doing the show, to leave all of that, that stress and that, um, that uh, um, what's, the, what's the word? Um, just the, the whole day you feel like you're shot out of a cannon and then you get there <laughs> and it's time to play the music. And it's hard for me not to just have all that, you know, on my face while I'm oh, playing piano, yeah. you know, the, the 12 hours of, of prep that day for this moment. Right. Every single one of these that I've been a part of have looked and sounded amazing, especially the look thing. It's like no matter how long it takes them to get the shots or to set things up or how much time they need to change a lens because they're looking for a different look or whatever, you know that at the end of it, it's going to be worth it. So. Yeah just trusting in the the people that are there and the experts that are behind the scenes as long as i can not look like i'm just miserable the whole time that's usually the the uh, the number one thing for me cuz i just have a hard time compartmentalizing the scramble that's the word i was looking for the scramble during the day and then yeah. then just trying to play music at the at the end of it yeah that's a that's a tough um line for me to walk yeah yeah you got to yeah you keep a clear head to do what you came there for. You're going to make it all the way and not yeah. look exhausted. Why? Right. It. Right. I mean, cause yeah, that's another thing, you know, nobody is going to see the thing and say, Oh, he looks like he had a long day. I, I bet this was a stressful shoot. No, nope. nobody's, you know, yeah. you're like, why is that? Why is that pianist look like that? You know, why that, is he making that, guy, that face? That you guy know? looks bummed. I get that. I get that a lot. <laughs> I get that a lot. So, you know. uh, uh, Oh, before we kind of move from like, you know, the big touring stage and, and working with artists like that, do you have any tips for going out to audition? Is there anything in your mind when you're looking to put a band together that separates one player from another? Well, 
getting along with people on the road is the number one thing. This is sort of what you're talking about, the technique versus the wisdom or the technique yeah. leading leading to wisdom, right? Is that the, you know, you have to have a certain amount of technique to get this work. And it doesn't mean that you have to, you know, study gospel drummers or shredding guitar players or whoever, you know, you have to have some fluency in some different worlds, but you need to sound like yourself and bring a thing of your own to the table. Once you have that, you have to have this, this interesting combination of having enough ego to know that you can go out there and do your job every night and you get on stage in front of whether it's you know, 50 people at a jazz club that are listening intently or 50,000 people at MetLife Stadium that are there to see a bigger production that you just happen to be a part of. You have to have the, the strength in yourself to know that you can do that night after night. But you also mm -hmm. have to have the humility to know that you're just a part of a thing that's on the road and that you need to be able to get along with everybody, especially everybody in the band. And then if there's a bigger touring component if there's there's crew there's backline there's there's a whole lighting team there's a whole video team there's uh, a whole audio team being able to get along with everybody there is is honestly more important at the end of the day because you you can maybe get the gig with the technique but you can only keep it if you've shown that you're somebody that people want to hang out with on the road. Like they say, you know, there's two hours a day together on stage, 22 hours a day together off stage, And that's really where the some problems can arise just from that part of it. That's great advice. The ego and humility aspect is really, that's really interesting. I wanted to, to just call that out for listeners that you, you have to be confident enough to know that you're going to kill it. Like you can't be scared when you step out there. But at the same time, you're just, you're playing a part like you are in anything, whether you're recording engineer or mixer, you're like you're playing your role, but you have to believe that you're going to crush your role. It's good. It's Absolutely. Really good. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe ego isn't the right term for it. Maybe it's, it's more confidence or having a being, being centered in your mind, you know, however you want to describe it, but just knowing that you're, you're not going to leave any doubt musically that yeah. that's the important part from the, from the technique side. But then, yeah, there's, there's everything else like you, like yeah. you said. I've had a couple of people that have done some musical directing uh, work on the show, and they've all basically said the same thing. It's it's about like being on the bus, being in the van. Everybody has to love you <laughs> in the bus. Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how good mm -hmm. you are. <laughs> um, yeah. All right, so let's let, let's hit some of these random questions I've got. Do you have a favorite like synth or keyboard instrument that you find the most inspiring to play? I know you're probably going to say piano, but if it's not piano, is there like a second love? Um, man. <laughs> I still love the Rhodes. When you find a, a Rhodes that has a good touch that can be, you know, expressive when you really dig in, but it can also play it lightly, sort of nothing like that. I'm also just really into the Prophet 6, the way that it is laid out. And it's, it's sort of become in the last five years or so, like the, the analog synth that everyone has. Right. Yeah. But there is so much expression you can get out of that thing. The way that it's laid out from kind of left to right, it just all makes so much sense. And to get in there and just sort of play the sound of it, it, it is a, a really, really fun, really fulfilling. I mean, somebody like Jason Lindner, he will go to the Village Vanguard with Donnie McCaslin and just play Prophet Six all night, including a couple of spots where they break it down. And it's just him and he's just painting 
with the sound of the instrument and really get some incredible sounds out of it. So yeah, that's it. That's a current favorite as well. So the, yeah, the that's awesome. That's awesome. I don't think that we've worked together that I haven't sent you an email that said, what is this synth sound? This is the most epic sound I've ever heard. I think every song yeah. that we work together on, that, that email comes out and you're always like, Prophet Six, Prophet Six. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, I'm gonna stop asking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, there's, and by now, I mean, here here at the studio, I'm fortunate to have a bunch of different options and, you know, uh, Korg makes a really great analog synth as well, the Minilog, and I have a, a Juno that I use for a bunch of things. The Mellotron is great. But um, if I just sort of need one thing and I just need to reach for something, that that's usually the first thing I go for is that, yeah, it's a profit. Since we're talking about since when did you really get into like building sounds from scratch? Was it a gig that you got sucked in on or just you got fascinated with it? Well, when I was growing up, I mean, like middle school, high school, my dad had a bunch of synths at the at the house and oh, I was nice. into it then. But then when I got to college it was just all piano there's no sounds just piano which and then i got very into that as well it wasn't really until i got hired for the in sync thing and part of that was i didn't need to bring anything they had a keyboard rig there ready for me actually i was um the guy i was replacing is uh this guy byron chambers mr talkbox um who did the stuff for bruno mars 24k um magic i mean he's like the best in the world right now at the talk box and um just a really really great guy and really really great player but he had a rig there and i was just replacing him and it was a i think it was a trinity chord trinity and a chord triton that's it and all the sounds were there but then you know they put out a new album we had to do more sound design added more keys to the rig and i really got back into programming sound design then kind of ever since then it's been sort of a dual thing of mine along with just going back to piano and just working on that but yeah with all the different synth options out there yeah it's definitely yeah something i'm still into that's yeah i guess i didn't think about it but when you're working on some of those big pop tours like the nsync and and some of the other ones you've worked on you kind of have to you have to recreate everything that falls on the record that is not track like the sounds are so iconic on on a pop hit that it has to be spot on and something that i like that i took from doing some touring early on is ideally with these with these big shows you have enough time in rehearsal to get everything together that by the time you're on the road you've rehearsed it enough you've done enough run-throughs that nerves aren't really a part of it now you're just playing the show and if you're going to be playing the show for two months on the road or nine months or whatever it is year and a half you may as well give yourself some stuff to do right and if there's this crazy sound on the record and you're not sure how they made it and it's might be more trouble than it's worth to program why don't you just leave it on track or why don't you just sample it you know i usually am like no why don't we try to figure out what that is and try to make it and try to play it every night because you are going to be doing the same thing you know playing this music every night for the next six months you may as well make it fun and even if that means yeah. front loading it with a bunch of crazy programming it's still fun to play months from now so yeah. i usually default to trying to make the sounds live first before we you know go to any backup plans that's awesome. Well, it kind of, kind of goes back to your your philosophy on like, you know, you're learning in every gig. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. you're always pushing yourself. While while we're on it, what is your for the bands that you're playing in, what is your keyboard rig? Are you is it a lot of computer with like main stage or like so if you're building all these sounds, what how are you how are you playing them? So what I generally like to do is have 
something with a really good piano sound that also feels like a, a as close to a piano as you can get. So normally it's like Nord stage. Okay. I think it's the stage, the stage three right now. I'll want to have an analog component. So that's been the Prophet 6. You definitely need a, a soft synth component as well and maybe something that can sample. So that's generally been main stage for me. And then I think maybe two tours ago for Taylor added the um, the chord Kronos because I wanted just a meat and potatoes, something with a bunch of great sounds built in where if I need to reach for something really quick, I don't have time to build a lead synth sound or a pad sound. I just need to reach for one. That sort of became the go-to for that. So that's, you know, between main stage, a piano sound, an analog sound, and maybe something else that um, that you can use whenever needed. That that generally covers all the bases for me. Okay, that's awesome. And then stuff like the Prophet 6, are you, I guess you're saving a lot of user patches? Oh, yeah. To, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then do yeah. you, are you selecting those or is it, I know like uh, guitar rigs now, like you've, so many things are MIDI controlled. Did you have, are, are things automatable on your end in that same sense? This is a this is a big debate with <laughs> with some of the the bands that I work with, especially the ones that I'm where I'm just putting things together and then you know letting them go out on the road. Once we've put in all the prep work, I always want to change my own patches. As a keyboard player in front of a bunch of people, if something goes wrong, you're going to be the one that hears it first. You you the keyboard player are going to hear it first. Not front of house, not monitors, not somebody else in the band. It's, you're going to know when your sustain pedal sticks or when you went to change a sound and it didn't change and it's, you're still on the old sound, you know, from the song right. before, something like that. Now, everything in the band is automatable these days. Is that a word? I guess I guess It so, is now. Right? We've used it twice. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so everything on stage, it essentially, can be automated from, from a playback computer, right? If you're a guitarist whose job it is is to stand there next to the lead singer and play a, a rhythm tone during the uh, during the chorus and then switch to a lead tone for the bridge and you can't be running back to a pedal board to do that because it's the show element is you sort of out there next to the singer by all means have that automated have that change in the box and then just you don't have to worry about it but keyboard player you're stuck behind a rig you're not going anywhere you're not going to be the love interest in some song next to the lead singer you're just you're you're back there doing your job you may as well control your patches too but more and more people have been automating them so i say you you know you're the keyboard player you do what you want but the day this melts down on the road somewhere do not call me asking about it. just remember that we talked about this and that <laughs> if i was you i would change your own patches yeah do you think that all of the technology is making it better but more complicated or is really like the touring experience from the md musician side the same it's just different you know um that's a it's a very good question and <laughs> i f i find myself a lot of times trying to just zoom out and say okay that's great that we can do this that's great that we can do that this is an option we can now like do the all the pyro from playback computer okay great is that definitely what we need or is it going to be better to you know, to keep this this element very technological, but this element very much more user-based or whatever. Yeah. Because you can go bananas with technology these days, but if somebody, if a stagehand is walking by the playback computer and kicks the plug 
right? I mean, is the whole show going to shut down or are, you know, or ideally maybe you just lose a couple loops here and there, but you still hear the sound of the drums. You still hear the, you know, the, the patches that everyone's playing. And then once we get Pro Tools back up, then we can, you know, then we can keep going. But in the meantime, the show goes on just fine. Yeah. So yeah. I'm always trying to kind of look at it from that standpoint. If you put, if you start putting more and more stuff on one plate, one piece of gear, no matter how well it's built, how great the person is running it, how infallible the technology is, you just run more risk. So I always want to try to keep that in mind. Yeah, you definitely do not want to stop because of one laptop. Yeah, yeah. The show, the show must yeah. continue past that yeah. laptop. Yeah. Okay. Last question from the from the MD world: Are there things that you've learned on the bigger projects and bigger productions that you bring to newer artists? Like things that you see the crowd react. Like when people are like, "We have a small budget." Are you? Do you have opinions about like this is the most bang for your buck? Like take this many people. Like only use this technology. Do you have opinions about that, or does that come down to management and artist? I I uh, will have opinions here and there. Very few, very few deal breakers. Uh, you know, I'll have some suggestions if they if they want. But also, you know, every situation is different. And you know, when you're coming in as a musical director to somebody's project that is already successful in one way or another, you know, maybe it's not doing stadium tours yet, but maybe you're playing clubs and there's 800 people coming to see you every night and you're changing lives, right? With it, the people that come, that leave this show are talking about this show for the rest of their life, right? You have to respect what that person has done to get to that, what that artist has done to get to that point already, right? And just because I've done things that are, uh, you know, have more people in attendance than that, doesn't really mean anything. They are the ones that know their fans. They are the ones that know what they do and maybe what their what their fans will want to see on a night to night basis. Or maybe they don't even the, the the fans thing isn't even the first thing in their mind. What they're concerned about is um, how they feel about putting on a good show. So if that means that they want to do everything with a you know an MPC or an ADAT or something that you know we don't use in some of these other situations but if that's what helps them get their vibe then why would i why would i disagree with that yeah now if something goes wrong or if they're asking you know hey what are some other ways to do this i want to have some options for them but every situation is so different and i, I you know having worked with so many different artists from you know people that start at the bottom and go absolutely nowhere they, they give it their best and it just you know, it, it just doesn't work out for them to people that, you know, are playing halftime of the Super Bowl. Uh, it takes so much effort, so much courage to just put yourself out there and to try to do your thing as an artist. I always want to respect that and respect where people are coming from. And that can mean from a show flow standpoint or how everything looks or how everything sounds or, or from a technology standpoint. But I always want to try to respect where people are at and what got them there. Yeah, that's a that's a really awesome answer. And that, like, for anybody that may not have connected the dots, is exactly the humility that you were talking about, that you play the role. And so I think that that answer is was right in line with what you've already said is important, to have the confidence to do the job, but the humility to know your role. Last question before we close it out. 
I have two questions that I end the show with, but I got one more before that. I always ramble at this point about questions, and Love I it. say the, I say the word question as many times as I can in the last <laughs> couple minutes. Yeah. Right on. But uh, you, so you've worked in so many genres. You obviously came up in jazz. You work in pop. You've done country acts. Is there something about your musical history or your musical interest that allows you to excel and operate across genres? I think having jazz be kind of a the, my my first love or my uh, the thing that I've spent so much time and effort on. That's just a, a kind of music that requires everything to be firing at the highest level. Your communication, your technique, your memory, improvisation. And I have always thought that if I can get to a level at playing jazz that is, that is good enough to hang in the scene, that the tools you accumulate along the way to make that happen. As long as you keep an open ear, that you can you can then hang in any kind of music. That doesn't mean that if you, you know, transcribe a bunch of Coltrane, that then you know what to play if you're playing a, a Johnny Cash tune. <laughs> but if you know what it took to be able to play one of Coltrane's songs and what it takes to develop that language, you can absolutely develop the language to play a Johnny Cash tune as well. So um, I think having the ha having the attention to detail to be able to hang on a jazz gig and then having the open ear to be able to to hear and absorb everything else. I think that's that's sort of the um, what's ended up opening a bunch of doors for me. Very cool. Dude, this has been a great hang. I've got two questions that I end the show with. First one is, was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? No. Success to me has always been being respected by the people that I respect. And that, yeah, that, I, that kind of started from, uh, I guess, a younger age and continues on to this day. Awesome. Okay. I love it. It's good. And then the uh, the final question is, uh, what is your current biggest goal that you can share? Obviously, you, you work with um, artists that you can't share information about. Uh, what is your current biggest goal, and what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? My biggest goal currently, and it's probably been this way for a while, is to be really dialed into managing my time between work, between family, and between creative pursuits. And those don't all exist separately, but whenever they do, trying to realize that I need to spend time on all three and, and balance them so that um, none of them get too, um, too out of whack with, with the other. I think if you can sort of, if one can figure out how to balance uh, those three things, that's, that's about as important as it gets, I guess. Uh, dude, I can't agree more. I talk about it on this show basically every episode. <laughs> balance in, in work-life balance when you love what you do is, uh, is challenging. Also, you know, we talk about like your own creative pursuits as well. It's just like if you want to make a record for you, you need to have time to make a record for you. And so, yeah, man, I, I, I got you on that one. Well, and, um, and also, not to, not to interrupt, but it, like, yeah. it, it, will, it makes your work better. If there's some stuff that exists in your, in your life, just 
because you you need to do it for whatever reason. It's a it's a thing you've already said yes to. It's a longstanding client. It's a you know whatever the case is. But if that's all you do, and you don't have any sort of creative outlet next to that, it, your work can start to suffer. But I know for me, as long as I have some time to do some things that I want to do and to to play some music that can be refreshing, surprising here and there, that just makes the when I need to turn it back to some, you know, some other work, it just makes it that much better. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. Everybody needs a little refresh, you know, no matter what you're doing, even if you're uh, on the management side or the business, I mean, you still like, you gotta have, you gotta have a little thing to, to light you up. Yeah. Dude, this has been great. Do you want to share with people where they can find you on the internet? Um, name of any of your projects or records, um, anything you want people to hear? Yeah, it's, uh, it's David Cook Music on Twitter, David Cook 88 on Instagram. The X Vitamins record is out on Spotify and all the streaming platforms. There's a couple of um, really great videos that are out for it right now. They're all on Vivo and YouTube. And um, there's a couple more on the way in the next few weeks. So check it out. Feel like it. You scratch the um, instrumental uh, indie pop, indie synth pop um itch i guess that's right so that's right yeah try it on your run that's yeah. where that's where david and i like it <laughs> perfect exactly amazing dude this has been a great hang i'm so glad to uh to have you um this was a lot of fun for me for multiple reasons this is my last interview of the year uh of the first year of my show so i'm i'm honored to to have you on here oh man well congratulations on um on crossing the finish line and um you're doing you're doing great work really it's an honor to be on here that's it for episode 51. Thanks to David Cook for coming on the show. Definitely check him out and his new project, The X Vitamins. As usual, thanks to everyone for listening. I appreciate you all spending this time with me every week. And also two friendly reminders, we do have a Patreon set up and any support there is always greatly appreciated. And if you have not yet left a review for the show, please consider doing that as well. As I move to focus on growth in year two, all of those reviews will help lock down more and more guests. And finally, don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net. I do have to say that my intro today was a little inspired by a conversation I had in Damien's online studio room. I know I say it every week, so you're used to hearing it, but the people over there on the Complete Producer Network are all super inspiring, and the conversations are really, really great. I don't just say that at the end of every episode. It is true. And so on that note, I will see you all next week.